Father, we pray that you will open our ears so that we may hear from you this morning. God, we pray that you will open our minds so that we may know you more this morning. Most of all, God, we pray that you will open our hearts so that we may love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I'm not sure how you spent your Thanksgiving weekend, but I can tell you for certain that I did not spend mine the way that I had originally planned to spend it. You see, like many of you, on Friday morning after Thanksgiving, we always set up our Christmas tree and decorate our house. And so we woke up early on Friday morning and we got all of our Christmas decorations out. But we realized that before we could actually start decorating our house, we had to do some cleaning. It's pretty normal. Well, as we're cleaning, we realized, well, hey, if we're going to put the tree right there, we've got to move some stuff around. Well, of course, you know that when you start moving stuff around, you start finding that stuff that's underneath all the, the, the couches and behind all the, the stuff that you know is there, but you haven't cleaned up any, you haven't really tried to clean it up because it's kind of hidden. Well, all that stuff gets exposed. And so as we're moving couches, we're having to do more cleaning. Long story short, not only did we just clean our entire downstairs, we completely gutted it, rearranged it, went through everything. We ended up taking multiple bags to the trash. We took a lot of stuff to Goodwill. What really should have been about a two-hour project ended up taking us about two and a half days. (laughs) It was not how I wanted to spend the weekend, but we realized that it was absolutely necessary because here's the deal. After all those multiple bags of trashes and trips to Goodwill and moving things around, we actually now have a house that we enjoy being in because we can move around. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> we can just move around in it differently, right? There, there used to be spaces where there was just, just piles of, of, of junk, and we would just put stuff there, and we couldn't use it. And now it almost feels like we have an entirely new house, and it feels wonderful. What, again, what should have been a simple task turned out to be a major ordeal, but we realized that we couldn't have done what we were going to do without making some really major changes. Now, I know that this kind of example is of rearranging a house is kind of superficial on some levels, but I think the principle plays itself out in our lives on much larger scales in multiple ways. You see, there are many things in life that we know that we should deal with, but we just kind of end up setting aside or kind of putting it over there and... and and not really dealing with it until something else finally causes us to address it. There are those things in life that force us to finally admit that we can't keep doing business as usual. And if we're going to do whatever task it is that is in front of us, that that things are going to need to change, the status quo needs to change. And making those changes are not usually very easy, and they're rarely ever very fun but we find out that they're absolutely necessary and they're worth it because it allows us to do life differently. That is why we actually need the season of Advent. You see, Advent is that season that causes us to get really honest about those places in our lives in which we can no longer do business as usual. 
You know, Advent causes us to causes us to to face those things that we've been setting aside or putting or kind of even hiding so that we can we it causes us to face those things so that we can receive the blessings and the benefits that come when our savior Jesus Christ and his kingdom breaks in. So on this second Sunday of Advent, we're going to look at a character in in the scriptures that I believe calls us to do this very thing. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. It's the gospel reading that we read just a moment ago, and it, it features a character, this character, John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, he's this person that we all know about, but I think if we're pretty honest with ourselves, we don't really know what to do with him. You see, he acts an awful lot like a, an Old Testament prophet, and yet he shows up in the New Testament. He comes before Christ, and we know that we're living after Christ, and, and so we're not always sure maybe what role he still plays in our lives. He's this kind of confusing character, and yet he plays a prominent role at the beginning of every single gospel. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, even Jesus tells us that there is no one greater born of a woman, born of a woman than John the Baptist. Jesus says, basically, that John the Baptist is the greatest human being to ever be born. So I think it's kind of important for us, especially in this season of Advent, to maybe get a, just a little bit of clarity on who John the Baptist is and what role he plays in our Christian life and in our Christian discipleship. And so this morning, we're going to talk just a little bit about who John the Baptist is. Before we jump into our Matthew text this morning, let me just give you a little bit about a little bit of the background of on on John. It's the Gospel of Luke that gives us the fullest account of of John's background. And in the Gospel of Luke, uh, John uh, Luke details John's early life. You see, John's father was a priest by the name of Zechariah, and his mother was Elizabeth, and his mother was Mary's, Jesus's mother's cousin. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth were, were old in age, and, and Elizabeth was, was barren, and one day Zechariah gets a, a, a vision in which God tells him that his barren wife will give birth to a son, a very common Old Testament motif. Subsequently, Zechariah becomes unable to speak again. He becomes completely mute until John's birth. So we know that his father was, was a priest, and he's in that lineage. And, but we also know this other thing about John, that John had this kind of uncanny ability to perceive the presence of Jesus. See, there's the famous story in which Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and, and John leaps for joy in Mary's womb because he knows that Jesus is in the room with him. And so he has the ability to, to perceive the presence of the Savior. That's really about all we know about him in his early life. That's all we're given. Maybe as we go through a little bit, we'll see that that actually tells us a lot. So Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, and people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, like I said, Matthew doesn't give us the background that Luke does. He, John just kind of shows up on the scene in Matthew's gospel. But Matthew is going to give us some pretty important details for our purposes about who John is and the purpose he plays. He simply tells us where he is. He tells us what he's wearing, things that seem seemingly insignificant details. But then he goes on and tells us what he's preaching. So where is he? Well, the Bible tells us that he's in the wilderness, He is in the wilderness, the prophecy, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. You see, throughout the Scriptures, the wilderness is a place of spiritual significance. Shortly after Jesus' own baptism, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and he's tempted. Shortly after Paul's conversion, Paul spends 10 years in the Arabian wilderness, in the Arabian desert. He spends 10 years there before he goes out on mission. But to a Jewish mindset at the time, the most significant symbol of the wilderness would be a symbol that reminds them of the definitive event in Israel's history, which would have been the Exodus. You see, that it was that wilderness that would make Israel remember that their ancestors wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Their 40 years in the wilderness was due to their failure to trust God to, to go in and to take the land of Cana, or the land of promise that God was giving them. And so, as a consequence, they wandered for 40 years, and that generation died in the wilderness. But God used the wilderness in the life of Israel not just for punishment. He also used it as a way of purification. It was in the wilderness that Israel learned to trust God, and it was in the wilderness that God was able to work on His people and to get rid of those things that would would keep them from experiencing life abundantly in the land that God was still taking them to. And it was in the wilderness that God was able to have them get rid of those things that would keep them from living life abundantly under God's law. The wilderness was a place for them to be able to shed burdens. In Christian spirituality today, we still use the idea of the wilderness as a spiritual symbol. Um, whenever we go through, say, like trials or doubts or dark nights of the soul, if you will, we say that, the, that it is God who is leading us through the wilderness. It's not fun at all, but it's in those kind of times of spiritual wildernesses that God is able to get our attention, that God is able to break through the noise of our life so that we can finally deal with the things that are keeping us from living the life that He would have for us to live. It's in that spiritual wilderness where God can show us why we can't living, we can't go on living business as usual. Now, by abundant life, I don't mean prosperity or even constant happiness. What I do mean is the life eternal, the life that we can experience now, even if only in part of the life that we will experience when Jesus returns and fully sets up his kingdom. But don't forget this that even when Israel was still in the wilderness, it was still God who was leading them. 
The symbol of John being in the wilderness would not have been lost on the Jewish people at the time. Not only was John in the wilderness in general, but Matthew tells us that John was baptizing in the Jordan River. Again, to the Jewish people, the Jordan River was a very sacred symbol of God's work in their lives. You see, after 40 years of wandering around in this wilderness, God raises up Joshua and has them cross the Jordan to finally receive the land of promise. The Jordan River is a symbol of that threshold that when finally crossed over, it ends the life of wandering and allowed Israel to live a new life in a new land. Wilderness is, the wilderness is not just also a place of, of trial and punishment or, or even and purification. The wilderness is also a place of refuge. Now, I know that might sound like kind of a, kind of a funny thing, because if you've ever been in a desert or a wilderness, it's not a, a very welcoming place. Wildernesses are, are, are harsh places, and they're very rarely ever safe. So what could a wilderness possibly be a refuge from? Well, the biblical scholar Craig Keener observes this. He says, the wilderness was typically a place of refuge from the hostilities of the city. Think about that for a second. The wilderness is a place of refuge from the hostilities of the city. You see, cities have this very real tendency to become echo chambers. Cities are filled and run by fallen human beings. And people become wicked, kings and rulers become self-centered and hungry for power, and the last thing that anybody ever really wants is for someone to tell them that they're wrong. A king never wants someone to actually challenge their authority or legitimacy to rule. So cities become these kind of insulated places that don't usually respond very well to anyone who might speak up and say something like, hey, hold on, folks, we're going in the wrong direction. Cities don't like it when someone tries to upend the status quo. However, that's the role that Old Testament prophets tended to play. Now, we talked a lot about prophets this morning, and Kyle did a really good job, and so I'm only going to just mention a few things about Old Testament prophets this morning. Prophets are important here because prophets were not just simply future tellers. Prophets were not simply future tellers. In fact, most of the prophets' messages spoke to Israel's immediate situation, or at least kind of the near future situations. Prophets were those people through whom God spoke in order to call God's people back to covenant loyalty. When the people of God were were living in sin, it was the prophet who, in really no uncertain terms, called them out and called them back. Prophets spoke to the people of God. Prophets and prophets told the harsh truth to God's people when they were living in sin and when they were living wickedly and when they were living in idolatry and when they were basically living like all of the other nations. You see, prophets called, prophets called them to confession and to repentance, not just so that they could live this kind of like, say, pristine, self-righteous life, but so that they could fulfill the task that God had given them. See, part of the promise to Abraham is that through his offspring, all of the world would be blessed. Israel was blessed in order to be a blessing to the other nations, and 
as they lived according to God's ways, the nations of the world would see it and would come flocking to them in order to get in on, on all of that good stuff, to be able to get in on the abundant life. And that in turn would bring glory to Israel's God. And prophets were the ones who kept reminding the people of God, hey, you can't be a blessing to the nations if you live just like the nations. But it wasn't just that Israel was missing out on a blessing. Again, part of the prophet's message was this kind of warning of impending judgment. Prophets called the people of God and their kings, who were usually the ones leading the people astray, to repent because God was about to bring judgment for their sins and for their unfaithfulness to the covenant. Repent or suffer the wrath of God. Sometimes we ask, well, why does God bring judgment even on His own people? Here's why. If you remember, God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel in order, to re- in order to tell Israel that they had profaned His holy name. And they did that because they failed to keep the covenant and, and they lived just like the other nations and yet still claimed to be the people of God. So when the other nations looked at them, they would just say, well, what's so special about your God? You're just like us. God's people identified themselves as people of the Most High and Most Holy God, but it didn't really seem to make much of a difference. They lived just like everyone else. And that, in turn, profaned God's name because, you see, God had designed it so that Israel's life would draw other nations to God. And that's how other nations would find life and would find salvation. So whenever we talk about God's wrath, we need to remember that God is not just some irritable God who's sitting up there and just wants people to do what He tells them to do. God's judgment is reserved for anyone and everything who would keep people from finding life and finding salvation, and that is actually a very loving thing. Again, people don't like to be told to change their ways. They don't like to be told they're wrong. Kings and rulers especially don't like people correcting them. And so the prophets tended to seek refuge away from these type of cities, usually because their life was in danger. Well, it had been about 400 years since a legitimate prophet had arisen on the scene in Israel at this time. And so that's why John's arrival on this scene actually caused quite a stir. Because, you see, Israel had been anxiously awaiting for such an event to happen. If you remember, the the entire Old Testament ends with a prophecy from Malachi that there is a day coming in which the Lord will judge His people and will judge the earth. But before that, God promises to send Elijah back to Israel. That's how the Old Testament ends. That's why the description of John's clothes are actually kind of important for the story. You see, it says that he wore a a garment of camel hair, and he wore a leather belt. If you look back in the, in, in, in the Old Testament uh, historical writings of the kings, that's the exact way that Elijah was described. That's how people were able to identify Elijah. You, you read that, you can read that in, in 2 Kings 1.8. And it was, it was how he was identified, and so there was a lot of discussion around the time of 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 John, of whether or not John was actually the prophet Elijah. And 
And if he was, did that mean that the, that the day of the Lord was actually drawing near? Jesus will later go on in Matthew 11 and say that, in, that affirmatively, that yes, John is the embodiment of the spirit of Elijah. And so that if John is Elijah, that means that God has finally broken his silence and something important is about to happen. So Israel, pay attention. Well, the description of John's clothes also tell us something else about John, and that's something else that we need to hear during Advent. It definitely makes a connection between him and Elijah, but it also tells us something else about John, that John lived a life unattached to the material things of the world, maybe except for the basic necessities. You see, John wore simple clothes, and John ate only the things that he could find in the wilderness. John lived a life of simplicity. Here's why that's important, because remember who John's father was. John's father was, was the priest, Zechariah. Now, priests weren't necessarily wealthy people, but the priesthood held a prominent place in Jewish society. It was a privileged position within society. Priests also sometimes had political ties, because a lot of times the Roman rulers would communicate to Israel through the priesthood. Basically, what, 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 what we know of John then is that John gave all of that up. We don't know the details surrounding it, but we know that he gave it all up. You don't really go wandering around the desert unless you have a resignation about those things. But the question would be is, well, why? Here's why it's important is that John being unattached to the material things of life and, and the, the social statuses that he could have had as the son of a priest, it allowed him to be fully focused on the task that God had given to him. You see, material possessions and societal statuses are distractions when it comes to the work of the kingdom. Does that mean that we all need to go walking around and wearing camels clothes and wandering around the desert like John. No, it, it doesn't. But it's a reminder that we need to think about our possessions and our places in society very differently than we do. You see, in the Gospel of Luke, the crowds respond to John's teaching with a, well, what should we do? John says, well, if you have two sets of clothes, give it to someone who has none. Tax collectors and soldiers, don't take more from the people than you are supposed to take. The point is, is that if you repent and you bear fruit for the kingdom, you will not be overly attached to your possessions. Because look, kingdom people are people who are ready to give at a moment's notice because there are people who don't try to take more than they need. There are people who, who are focused on much more important things. That's why I thank God that Advent comes when it does during a time when the rest of the world, even just down the street at the mall, are caught up in kind of the consumeristic spirit of the day. Advent comes to us with a very prophetic message that we need, that when the rest of the world is trying to accumulate things, we need to actually let things go for the sake of the kingdom. Get rid of the burdens that keep you from experiencing kingdom life. See, kingdom minded people aren't people who are worried about their status in society. And that's why kingdom-minded people are people who are able to tell the truth. The truth hurts, and people who worry about what others think or are worried about how their place in society are go is going to be affected are not people who tell the truth. Prophets 
were people who told the truth, and it did not always turn out well for them. John, like Elijah, told the truth that people needed to repent of their sins, and it put him at odds, even with the king, Herod, which eventually cost him his life. Church, hear me this, that, that if we are so worried about our status in society, how society perceives us, then we will stop being people who tell the truth. If we're so worried about even having our, our politicians in power, yes, I'm going here, then we're going to stop telling the truth. Because a church that is so focused on our place in society or, or, or is that so focused on being in charge or having power, power will be a church that stops telling the truth. And a church that stops telling the truth is no longer a prophetic voice in society and is no longer a voice for the salvation that society needs. So I'm glad that Advent comes when it does because, as we all know, we just went through a very crazy election season and the church, which should have been a voice of reason and a voice of a better way, it got caught up in it just like everybody else did. And like everybody else, the church got caught up in the, in the struggle for, for control and the struggle for the will to power. And just like everybody else, it failed to tell the truth and it lost its prophetic voice. And so we need Advent to help us to recalibrate and get honest about the ways in which we've sought social status, in which we've sought power, in which in, seek, and in seeking those things, it's distracted us from living and acting as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I hope you didn't think that, John, that the details about John's clothing were insignificant. See, John was in the wilderness. The wilderness was the place of the exodus, the place from that movement from an old life to a new, as prophesied in, in Isaiah. And he was identified as the foretold coming Elijah, who was coming before the great day of the Lord. All of that provides the necessary context for what he was preaching. And his preaching was this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the kingdom, which is that time in which God would come and restore the throne of David, and, and, and the anointed one would rule over Israel and bringing freedom from oppression and bringing peace and justice and equity, was something that was constantly on the minds of the people of Israel. John comes on the scene proclaiming, look, the wait is over. It says, the kingdom has come near. Your translations may say, the kingdom is at hand. The message is of one of urgency. Another way to translate that is to say that the kingdom of heaven is now. The kingdom is now. You see, John, was a, John played the role of a forerunner or, um, uh, or a herald in, in a sense. Forerunners throughout history were always those who would go into a city ahead of a king and let the people of the city know that the king was on his way. They would give an advance warning so that the people of the city would be able to repair their roads and, and they would get their servants ready so that they could have everything they needed when the king came and nothing, so that nothing would interfere with his travel and that he would be able to be welcomed when he came into the city. Prepare the way of the Lord, make, the pa- make his pass straight. Let nothing hinder his coming. The forerunner was not only for the benefit of the king, it was also for the benefit of the people. It gave the people time to prepare because when the king would enter a city, he would assess the situation and, and say things like, well, how have things been in my absence? Wickedness would be punished 
faithfulness would be rewarded. The one thing that everyone understood was that when the king was present, you could not keep doing business as usual. When the king came in and he set up his rule, that meant that there was kind of a new state of affairs. There's a new agenda. Now, too often, we let the world set the agenda for how we do life. We let the world set the agenda for our ethics, for our economics, for our politics. But people who claim to be citizens of heaven can't let the world set the agenda. Because citizens, king, citizens of heaven live on earth according to how it is in heaven. Let me give you a good example. Go home and read Hebrews chapter 11. It's that great chapter extolling all the faithful people throughout the ages. They weren't faithful people because they had this kind of superhuman ability to be faithful. The author of Hebrews 11 tells us that, the, that people were faithful because of this in verse 16. Because as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. They were looking for the, for the city of heaven. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city for them. Friends, we have a great cloud of witnesses that tell us that when the king comes, there is a new way of life. It's a new way of seeing the world. It's a new way of being in the world. And you can't live the new life according to the old ways. You can't live the new life according to the old ways. That's why repentance was such a central aspect of John's message. Repentance, simply put, means to turn around, to change your mind. You're going one way, you need to go another way. Thinking and doing go together. And so repentance is saying, hey, you know, I've been living life one way. Now I'm going to do things a different way. I'm going to do things another way. I'm going to do things God's way. When we repent, we get really honest about those things that weigh us down. When we repent, we, we have to kind of clean out those corners of our lives, like those rooms that we know we just kind of keep putting stuff in and not wanting to deal with. Well, repentance means that we have to deal with them. When we repent, we lay aside all of those things so that we can receive the blessings of the kingdom. It's a good thing that, that, we, that we deal with. It is not always fun, but it's necessary. And so as we repent and, and we put aside those things that distract us, we, or when we repent, we put aside those things that distract us from, uh, from not just receiving a blessing, but also being the blessing to others. If we're so focused on ourselves, it's hard to focus on sharing God's blessing with others. Now, there is a lot more that needs to be said about John the Baptist. There is a lot there, and I wish that I, that I had time. But as we, as, as, as we close, as, and as we go throughout the next few weeks remembering Christ's first advent, and as we prepare for his second advent, all the while living according to the kingdom that we know is a reality now, even if not fully yet, I think we need John's message in our lives. And I think we need it for two reasons. And the first one is this. A lot of times, oftentimes, sometimes daily, 
We need people to speak the harsh truth into our lives. We don't always want it, but we need people to speak the harsh truth in our lives. We need to hear John's message, and we need metaphorical John the Baptist in our lives who are willing to tell the truth to us. And when we are not living according to God's ways and we're missing out on the blessings, we need people to, to, to remind us to lay down our burdens, to get rid of those things and to properly deal with the things in our lives that constantly, that constantly burden, burden, sorry, burden us and distract us from experiencing the life of the kingdom. But that leads to the second reason why we need to hear John the Baptist's message this morning. The main role of John the Baptist is to point to Christ. The main role of John the Baptist is to point to Christ. And in Advent and in our daily lives, we need John and other people to constantly point us away from our own self-centeredness and point us to Christ. Commentators show that, that like to say that, that John is the end of the law, that John is kind of the last prophet of the law. The law is necessary, but what does the law do? The law points to something greater. It points to our need for something greater. And that's why we need Christ. The law points to grace, and grace fulfills the law if it is that thing that the law could never do. It can bring the forgiveness and the restoration that the, that the law could never do. And so that's why we need to be constantly pointed to Christ and, and constantly remembering what Christ has done for us. Our passage that we read earlier in Isaiah and, and, and later in, uh, in, in verse 12 of, of chapter 3 talks about Christ is the one who gives the Spirit. Talks that Christ is the one who baptizes us in the Spirit. As Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit from Christ, which is the very Spirit of Christ. And where the King is, there is also the kingdom. And so, and so our call in Advent for Christians living after the first Advent, waiting on the second one, is to release the Spirit in our lives, let go of those things that keep us from, from living according to the Spirit's leading in our lives so that we can experience the kingdom and so that others might be able to experience the kingdom when they look at our lives and they might be in the, in that through our lives God might be able to bless others. That's why we constantly need the second Sunday of Advent to hear John the Baptist's message. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is now. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.